this week on Geek Explained to celebrate the release of Spider-Man 2. Part 3 of Geektober puts the Geek Explained spotlight on the antagonist of this highly anticipated game as we cover Craven's Last Hunt. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part three of Geektober, where we are dedicating the entire month of October to spooky discussions and horrifying tales. This week, part three is dedicated to another edition of our Geek Explained Spotlight, where I will be discussing. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part three of Geektober. We are dedicating the entire month of October to spooky stories, and what's spookier than talking about Spider-Man? Uh, this week, we are celebrating the release of Spider-Man 2, the maybe the most highly anticipated superhero video game of the last couple years. I know I have been waiting way too long to play this game so i'm very excited to play this and in honor of the big video game debut of craven i know he's popped up in other things but this is craven craven we're talking about here not a not an adaptation or like a weird side character craven is front and center in this story and so i figured i would keep craven front and center in spidey stories this week by discussing craven's last Hunt. This has been requested for a very long time, and I've been waiting to do this one until the right occasion, and this week feels right. He's going to be popping up in the new video game. The video game is also dealing with Venom in the black costume, and Spidey's in the black costume in Craven's Last Hunt, so all of the stars have aligned, and we're going to be discussing maybe one of the most famous Spider-Man stories of all time, certainly Craven's most famous famous story i think um other stories have tried to kind of ape this story whether it's to rewrite certain things that happen here to undo them or to just kind of capture that same magic but there ain't nothing like a good craven's last hunt so we're going to be digging into it we also have the latest weekly review on season two of loki as well as this week's comics countdown where i'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week but before we get into that there's a little known event that happened this past weekend and it was called Oh, what's it called? New York Comic Con! The biggest comic convention outside of SDCC, and maybe even bigger at this point, since SDCC is less of a comic book convention now and more of a all-media convention. Either way, New York Comic Con was this past weekend, and there was a lot of pretty exciting stuff coming out of that. So rather than just kind of gloss over it, or God forbid not even talk about it, 
I think we're going to bring an old segment back. So we're going to dive straight into the news segment, New York Comic Con edition, and away we go. All right, my guys, my gals, my non-binary pals, let's talk some news. It's been a while. It's been a little bit. I wanted to do something special because we got a lot of news (laughs) out of New York Comic Con. Um, I'm going to kick things off with, uh, and I'm doing this in no specific order, just in the order of things I jotted down. Um, The first thing, uh, we got a big announcement for the anniversary of Dragon Ball that a brand new series is going to be debuting next year, Dragon Ball Daima. Uh, Doesn't look like we're continuing with Super, even though the Super manga has continued. You know, we got the Moro arc, and I kind of was hoping we would continue that with the series, but... Uh, we are instead looking to go a different direction. We got a trailer that shows off something very odd. Uh, we have the dragon granting a wish. We don't know wished by who, but everyone is turned into a child. Though specifically, at least I didn't see, Gohan does not seem to be a child. It looks like everybody is a child except, like, Gohan. And maybe it's because I just didn't see him and I wasn't looking. Uh, but I don't remember seeing him at all in the trailer. So we'll just have to see. The funniest thing to me is uh, is Goten and Trunks. Because if you have been paying attention at all to Dragon Ball Media, and I recognize that this is completely out of the purview of some of you, but if you have been paying attention in the most recent... Uh, movie that we got dragon ball super superhero uh we did see trunks and goten finally get a new get updated designs they're adults now and everything is right in the world but uh it looks like we are back to um having them as little babies because they have been reduced to babies again i think it is hilarious it makes me very happy but yeah, it, it's a weird thing, right? Because it doesn't really tell us anything that's happening in it. It just kind of shows off everybody running around as kids. And I don't know. I think it's it's being done by Akira Toriyama. So we know that there is, you know, a plan behind this. We know there is a plot, hopefully. We know <laughs> that Toriyama is working towards a goal. What goal? We don't know which. But... What I do know is that the animation looks gorgeous. It looks fantastic. I was hoping that they were going to kind of be sticking with the art style that was in the uh, the Broly movie, which I absolutely adored. But it looks like we're going to be kind of continuing on the trend of the super designs slowly getting just, I guess, more refined, rounder, a little bit shinier, though not completely 3d like the superhero movie was but yeah everybody's kids now that's a thing it's back to it looks like goku and vegeta just doing their you know leading the show again which i i'm a little disappointed by i'm I'm not gonna lie i'm a little disappointed by it um just because we saw how good a story can be with 
other characters leading the charge in the most recent movie. But what I'm wondering, because again, we see everybody basically as kids. Are they GTing this? Are they GTing it up here? They're, Toriyama's doing his own, uh, t- doing his own take on the events of Dragon Ball GT, where just Goku was turned into a kid, where now everyone is a kid. I am very curious. Again, the art style looks tremendous. It looks gorgeous. It also looks like it's going to be kind of spotlighting the history of the of the franchise we see in multiple moments them going through like screens of like different events that happen throughout Dragon Ball's history but yeah man I don't know I don't know what the the plan is we know that this is coming out fall 2024 and uh, that's pretty much all we know we'll we'll have to keep an eye out for that uh, we got a Big announcement from DC. Elseworlds are back, baby. Elseworlds are returning with six brand new series. Uh, This is pretty exciting because Elseworlds was a big deal for a very long time when it comes to DC Comics. And I know, at least for me, some of my favorite stories of all time are Elseworlds stories. You talk about your all-star Supermans. You talk about your Gotham by Gaslights. Keep it... Keep 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 the pin in that one. Uh, we talk about Kingdom Come, maybe the best, probably the best. Who knows? Who's to say? Not me. But there are so many DC stories that are famous that are, in fact, Elseworlds stories. So the return of the Elseworlds imprint is really exciting. Black Label has kind of taken the charge for a lot of that in recent years. Y'all remember when we got that new uh, reprint of All-Star Superman and it was a Black Label title? hilarious but we do seem to uh be trending back towards the elseworlds as a brand which is really cool but the six series that were announced uh first off we got we got a lot of batman which is to be expected uh it's it's dc after all but uh the first one we got is dc versus vampires world war v which is going to be a 12 issue uh maxi series written by matthew rosenberg and art by otto schmidt uh dc versus vampires the synopsis goes like this it's basically a sequel to the original dc versus vampires says dc versus vampires was the brutal first chapter in a larger war for the fate of the earth In this upcoming sequel by Matthew Rosenberg and Otto Schmidt, sunlight is restored to the Earth, but was it too late? As a new Ice Age dawns, humanity faces their most deadly threat yet, Barbara Gordon, Queen of the Vampires, which sounds terrifying. I've not read DC vs. Vampires, I've heard good things, but um, the cover looks fantastic. I don't know who's doing the art on this, but it shows... It looks like Zealot, uh, who's just getting a big resurgence right now, I guess. Uh, Harley Quinn, of course. Damian Wayne, it looks like. And is that a Wonder Twin? It sure looks like a Wonder Twin, but in like a like a post-apocalyptic nun costume. It's interesting. I'll, I'll be interested in that. Uh, next, we got uh, the first of two big Batman books that are being helmed completely by artists, which is really awesome. Uh, Batman Nightfire, which is going to be a six-issue series uh, by Clay and Seth Mann which is really cool. Uh, Twin Brothers on a Batman book. That's really fun. Um, 
It says, uh, Batman Nightfire sees Superstar Clayman unleashed in a mind-expanding mystery, beautifully counterbalanced with explosive action in this unflinching reimagining that sees Bruce Wayne try to rectify a devastating tragedy by traveling to the past. What secrets does this Batman hold so tight that he would watch Gotham be reduced to ashes? What truths are exposed when there is nowhere left to hide? That sounds really interesting. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm pretty much tapped out of Batman books. Uh, so I probably won't be picking this up, but it sounds interesting. And you know the art is going to be gorgeous. Um, next up we have uh, Dark Knights of Steel All Winter, which is going to be a six-issue series uh, written by Jay Kristoff with art by Tirso Cons. Cons? Cons? I don't know. I apologize. Uh, but this, it looks like it's going to be a spinoff of Dark Knights of Steel, which I absolutely loved. If you haven't yet, go pick out the entire series. It's 12 issues. But it looks like we're going to be going from the more um, Europe, mainline European medieval stuff and going into some viking nonsense which i'm stoked for uh so let's dig into this it says in this new series the snow falls thick blood runs black and color itself is only a distant memory the legendary assassin Deathstroke stalks a frozen wasteland, killing for coin among a nation of ever-warring Jarls. But when our murderer for hire finds himself cast in the role of reluctant guardian, will he fight to end the icy curse destroying his land or be consumed by the sins of his own dark past? I'm kind of, with it saying like, oh, the color, I kind of hope it's in black and white. Selfishly, I'm not familiar with uh, Tirso Khan's art, but selfishly, I kind of want it to be all in black and white with the, you know, the splashes of red. Um, I am very curious about this. This does seem to be another, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub story just with Viking Deathstroke, which is a cool idea. But yeah, I am, I'm very curious. I'm very curious. Uh, next up, another Batman book, but this one is Batman the Barbarian, which is going to be a six issue series. Written and illustrated by Greg Smallwood. You know how much I love me some Smallwood. So I'm excited about this. Uh, it says, Batman the Barbarian is a brutal and remarkable retelling of Batman's origin set against a rugged medieval earth. And yeah, that's really all we need to know about it. So I am, I'm excited. This looks really, really cool. Uh, it's, it's Greg Smallwood. So, I mean, what more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? A new Green Lantern series! I am stoked on this. The last time we decided to experiment with Green Lantern, we got Far Sector, and that ended up really good for everyone. So I am very excited about Green Lantern Dark, which is going to be a seven-issue miniseries written by Tate Brumball and art by Werther Deladera. I hope I said that correctly. If not, I apologize. But it's introducing a brand new lantern who looks dope as hell. It looks like it's taking a lot of inspiration from... Oh, God. I don't remember which Earth it is. But it's the Earth with the lantern that who actually carries around, like, a lantern. It's, like, it's got, the, like, the stick with the lantern hanging on it. I don't remember what Earth it is. But this looks like it is at least, you know, homaging that. But the synopsis says... Uh, Green Lantern Dark reimagines the DC universe as a dark fantasy waste, ooh, dark fantasy wasteland where monsters overrun a post-apocalyptic Earth. The battle between good and evil ended long ago. 
now. Darkness prevails as humanity struggles to survive on a corrupted planet. Only one hero remains, the one who wields the green flame that can return green flame that can return light to a dark world, the Green Lantern. But she's been missing for years, and on the isolated island of New England, the horrors only get worse by the night. Are we talking Green Flame? Are we talking original Green Lantern? I'm I'm into it. I I dig that. This might be the one I'm the most excited about. Because again, I feel like people take big swings when it comes to Green Lantern books and introducing a new female lantern, giving us again a little post-apocalyptic story. It's really cool. I'm digging it. I am really excited about this. But I think the big one for a lot of people, the one that got the most hype behind it, is Gotham by Gaslight, The Kryptonian Age, which is going to be another 12-issue maxi-series by Andy Diggle. That's, that's, that's a big coincidence. More on that later. Uh, with art by Leandro Fernandez. Gotham by Gaslight, The Kryptonian Age, expands the mysterious and gothic world created by Brian Augustine and Mike Mignola beyond the confines of Gotham City, introducing DC's greatest heroes as they come together for the first time to form a 19th century Justice League. As they unite against the greatest threat the world has ever known, they will learn their world's secret Kryptonian history. Calling it now Zodderstaro. We'll just have to see. But I'm actually... Look, I love some steampunk nonsense i i love me some steampunk so giving me a steampunk justice league if we don't get steam lantern from the green lantern animated series i am going to riot (laughs) we need steam lantern uh i i hope that's what we get but yeah big news with that elseworlds reveal really excited about that and i'm excited for us to continue to expand on it uh let's see if there are any other dc stuff specifically not really um we're gonna jump over to invincible Uh, invincible season two got a new trailer uh i haven't watched it because i'm trying to keep myself as spoiler free but i hear the trailer was very good but more importantly or just as importantly let's say mortal kombat one released the first trailer or release the trailer for its first downloadable character, that being one Omni-Man. Ah, very excited about this. Nolan Grayson is uh, maybe one of the greatest characters ever created, and he looks fantastic. They got him back, or they got J.K. Simmons back, of course, to voice him. Uh, The gameplay looks fantastic. His fatalities look, I think... um, objectively ridiculous but also makes sense for what they're doing there so i i really like this i i dug this a lot and of course it's released he's releasing in november to coincide with uh november 3rd which is uh season two dropping very excited about all of that stuff so that is going to be a lot of fun we do have one more dc thing i just looking over it now uh jason aaron who we know is writing a uh batman series is going to be taking over action comics next year with a story called i brainiac uh looks like he's gonna be teaming up with artist um john timms i believe is his name uh the two of them are going to be telling a story in the pages of action comics and it looks like action comics is going to turn into an anthology book and it's going to be a rotating team it looks like they're going to get like four to six issues and then it's going to be handed over to the next team. Next team, I believe, is Joshua Williamson and uh, someone else. I should have looked this up, but sounds great. 
Uh, we talked about during the Days of Thunder. If you haven't listened to that se- that mini season of the of the book club, go check that out. We had a ton of fun with that, um, and it got to end with us actually interviewing Jason Aaron, which was great. Uh, the Thor series that he wrote forever was maybe one of the best Superman stories we've ever read. And so to have him actually helm Superman is going to be incredible. I am super, super stoked on that. But I think unequivocally, it's New York. You know, the only company that is more synonymous with New York than maybe the Yankees? It's Marvel. Marvel stole the weekend this past uh, New York Comic Con. And I don't even know where to start here. Um, Let's start with... uh, Let's start with a bad thing. Uh, We found out that um, the entire uh, team behind Daredevil Board Again has been summarily fired as the series seems to be going back to the drawing board. Um, They've decided, hey, maybe we should run these like actual TV shows. And we knew that with the conclusion of the WGA strike and the new agreement that they had come to that sweeping changes were going to be coming to these writers rooms and these uh, show running uh, responsibilities and all this stuff. But it sucks when people lose their jobs. However, it doesn't seem like this was going to be anywhere near the tone or the quality of the first three seasons of the Netflix series, which granted by a different company at that point in a different continuity, there is bound to be not a lot of crossover. And I actually really enjoyed the direction that daredevil took when he showed up in she Hulk. I know it wasn't for everybody, but I really enjoyed it. However, apparently daredevil wasn't going to show up in costume until episode four, which if they're going for a different genre, like they're going for, let's do uh, like a, a law procedural. Cool. You don't necessarily need Daredevil right away, but also they knew this before they started filming and they filmed a lot of footage before the strikes happened. And I guess they're scrapping that. I don't know if they're going to be recycling it into whatever the show becomes next, but who knows? Daredevil, Born Again, The Redux, Electric Boogaloo will be coming to Disney Plus at some point in the future. Who knows? Um, But the big things that happened, uh, let's talk about Avengers Twilight. Avengers Twilight sounds bug nuts. I'm really excited about this. Uh, We got a tease for it prior to the weekend. Uh, We saw this logo of Avengers Twilight. The future needs to be avenged. But we didn't know really what was going on. We got a cover reveal as well as the team behind it chip zadarsky and daniel acuna i love me some daniel acuna you know i do and i am so excited to see what they do with this story um it's looking very dystopia which i dig uh the synopsis looks like this in a gleaming new world of prosperity captain america is no more But Steve Rogers still exists, floating through an America where freedom is an illusion, where the Avengers are strangers and his friends are long dead. But is the dream? How do you assemble Avengers in a world that doesn't want them? Holy shit. It's a Captain America story. It's Captain America Kingdom Come. 
Who? I, that sounds amazing. I'm so into this idea. Um, Daniel Cunha drawing Cap again is a dream for me. So I'm very excited about this. Chip Zdarsky making his triumphant return to Marvel as well. Uh, this is going to be a good time. It's going to be a real good time. And I'm very excited about this book. The X-Men were kind of the, the hot ticket of this weekend. We got a bunch of news regarding them. Um, we got the announcement that we are getting a brand new uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver series to spiral out of the Scarlet Witch series, which I'm assuming is going to be ending this year. Um, but it's continuing on with Steve Orlando, this time bringing in artist Lorenzo Tometa. Uh, we got a cover reveal by Russell Donnerman, of course, uh, and a couple of interiors. The interiors look great, and it looks very much like this is coming from the same... Uh, if, if, if not the same visual style, there's definitely some shared DNA between this story and uh, Sarah Pacelli's art in the, uh, in the Scarlet Witch book, which I've been loving. Uh, you can't go wrong, Sarah Pacelli, Pacelli, Cinderella. So this book is going to be kind of spiraling out of another book that's going to be happening. Um, but it's going to be the two of them celebrating their 60th anniversary, which is really exciting. I hope and pray that at some point we get another Redux of the kooky quartet i would i would dig a book like that especially with all of their shared knowledge now ah it would be a dream but they're going to be continuing on uh synopsis says the scarlet witch and quicksilver have been heroes friends family heads and occasionally villains but above all they are twins who look out for each other so when wanda receives a letter from the recently deceased magneto that would upset pietro she burns the letter before her brother can read it but her choice drives them apart at the worst possible time a new threat heralded by the wizard with a horrifying eldritch upgrade is coming for their heads and if they can't find a way to repair the damaged bond it will cost them their lives so yeah that's really exciting i always dig scarlet witch and quicksilver i dig them together so i am looking forward to this for sure but the big thing for the x-men was the official announcement of the end of the krakoan age everything kicks off this january we knew that it wasn't built to last and we got the announcement that starting in January, we'll be getting not one, not two, but three series to herald the end of the dream of Krakoa. That being the fall of the House of X, the rise of the powers of Ten, and the resurrection of Magneto. I am stoked as hell on this. This is going to be a good thing. I'm very excited. Uh, we got the cover reveals as well as the first synopses for each of the first issues. Um, I'm assuming they're going to go back and forth. It's going to be like a three-week thing. I, I don't know this for a fact. I'm just speculating that we'll have Fall of the House of X, Rise of Powers of Ten, Resurrection Magneto, Break Week, and then start the whole thing over again. Again. I don't know if this is the case, but... I feel like that would make sense to me. Um, and the synopses go like this. So, Fall of the House of X, five issues, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Lucas Wernick. And the synopsis says, Krakoa has just begun to fall in fall, or just begun to fight in Fall of the House of X number one. Mutant kind has never had a greater fall. From the highs of Krakoa, their own glorious nation, a place where they were safe and happy, to the lowest of lows. Outlawed, hunted, 
killed, most of their kind missing or dead, and now one of their greatest leaders, Cyclops, is on trial facing a death penalty. Ready or not, the time has come for the X-Men to make their final stand against the forces that have struck them low. The day is now. The place is here. The tale of the house Xavier built will long be told, and few will forget this darkest chapter. So that sounds intense. Uh, The next book that comes out is Rise of the Powers of Ten, which is written by Karen Gillan with art by R.B. Silva, which reads, And the fight for Krakoa has been lost from week to week. Uh, In Rise of the Powers of Ten, number one, ten years ago, the mutants returned from their exile to try and reclaim the Earth from the forces of Orcus. They failed. Now within the victorious Orcus with now within the victorious Orcus with their gauntlet choking the world, Nimrod and Omega Sentinel put their plan within a plan into action. They are to summon their binary god to consume everything in their accession. All that stands between them is the X-Men. What can they do? They're the X-Men. They'll find a way. That's their power. So begins a story beyond time and space with the rise of powers beyond our petty human intelligence. This one looks interesting. Uh, We've got a brand new X-Men team, uh, which looks like Sync in the Xavier role. We've got Wolverine, no change. Shadowcat is looking very Apocalypse, which I think is fascinating. We have what looks to be, I think this would be hilarious, if it's literally the island of Krakoa, what's left of it in an Iron Man suit. That sounds amazing. And then Kamala Khan as Captain Krakoa. Holy shit. That sounds really amazing. Um, So that's that. And then the third book that was announced, The Resurrection of Magneto, which is going to send ripple effects all over the place. Um, This is written by Al Ewing with art by Luciano Vecchio. And it says, it's a tale of life, death, and resurrection of Magneto number one. On Krakoa, resurrection from the dead was as easy as completing a circuit. But Krakoa fell. The time of easy miracles is over, and only the hard roads are left. Now it falls to storm, as the epic conclusion to the to the Krakoan Age looms to bring their oldest enemy home to fight against the fall of the House of X. But after all he did and all that was done to him, can Magneto bear to return? Magneto's a fascinating character, and I I talked about this before when he died during the events of uh, AXE. We should have had a solid five years of him just not being anywhere. The fact that they held off for basically like right around a year is... I mean, a big accomplishment in itself, but I am not surprised, just disappointed that he's coming back so soon. But if they are trying to end the Krakoan Age and kind of reset the board, you gotta bring Magneto back. But I'm interested to see what they're doing with this, like, Hardway resurrection. That should be really interesting. And then we got the big announcement. What we've all been waiting for, the slate for the Ultimate Universe going forward under the banner of Jonathan Hickman. We got four new titles announced. Uh, We got the Ultimate Universe number one, which seems like it's just going to be that big one-shot, and then three new full-fledged series that I'm going to get into as we go. Um, so the ultimate universe number one, let me pull this up is just, again, kind of establishing everything. Um, it's going to be the big, you know, 
reset button, welcoming everyone to the new uh, the new status quo. We've got lots of cool stuff going on. If you didn't read Ultimate Invasion, you need to get caught up on it now, because that is going to be important as we go along. I am very excited about this. Um, yeah, th- this is, this is going to be very interesting. But the three books that are spinning out of this in order of their uh, their appearance here. Ultimate Black Panther number one. It's a new ongoing series written by Brian Hill with art by Stefano Caselli. I love me some Stefano Caselli art. This is going to be amazing. And Brian Hill is wonderful. Synopsis goes like this. The new Ultimate Black Panther. Panther. In the wake of Ultimate Invasion, Khonshu and Ra, the force together known as Moon Knight, amazing, uh, are seeking to expand their brutal control of the continent of Africa. In response, the lone bulwark against them, the isolated nation of Wakanda, will send forth its champion, its king, the Black Panther. From the creative minds of Brian Hill and Stefano Caselli comes a bold new take on the world of Black Panther and Wakanda. Now note that they did not say T'Challa specifically. It's probably going to end up being T'Challa. But I am stoked on this. I'm very, very, very excited. This sounds absolutely incredible. Black Panther versus Moon Knight? Hell yes. Let's do it. Next up, the one that everybody was, you know, losing their minds over, and rightfully so, Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Marco Cicchetto. This is where the Cicchetto train has stopped. We are jumping on board for Ultimate Spider-Man. Synopsis goes like this. The new Ultimate Spider-Man for a new Ultimate Universe. Visionary writer Jonathan Hickman and acclaimed artist Marco Cicchetto bring you a bold new take on Spider-Man, with this the debut title of the new line of Ultimate Comics. After the events of Ultimate Invasion, the world needs a hero. Who will rise up to take on that responsibility? Prepare to be entangled in a web of mystery and excitement as the all-new Ultimate Spider-Man comic redefines the wall crawler for the 21st century. Now this got a big old presentation showing a four costumes, which I thought was very interesting. The classic Ultimate Spider-Man costume, the symbiote suit, the 2099 suit, and the sensational Spider-Man I'm very excited about this. I don't know what it means, but I'm stoked. Uh, Jonathan Hickman in the press conference also mentioned that this would be a Peter B. Parker. This is middle-aged Peter B. Parker. Um, So I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's an an older Peter Parker getting bitten by the spider or a Spider-Man that's been at this for a long time. Who knows? But I know that I'm very excited. This is going to be great. But the one that I was the most hyped about, and you know why, was Ultimate X-Men number one. This is written and illustrated by Peach Momoko! Peach Momoko is helming X-Men. We have been seeing her absolutely crush the game in all of the Demon Days stuff. Peach Momoko is an absolute visionary. There is nothing look that looks like Peach Momoko's art anywhere, at any time. Peach Momoko is just 
She she's incredible. She has been killing the game for a very long time. She is unique in her um, in her approach to stories to characters. The Momoko verse, I guess people have been calling it, has been absolutely wonderful. And now she is going to be helming a full fledged X Men book starring Hisko Ichiki. I am so excited about this. Uh, just you know, I have been beating the drum for armor for the for my entire life. For my entire the entire time that I've been a fan of the X Men, I've loved armor as a character, and I am so freaking excited about this. I oh my god, I love I love armor as a character. I love that this is something that is happening, and I am so excited about this. Um, armor is going to be our. Our new generation's Kitty Pride, our new generation's Jubilee, and I could not be happier about this. So I am stoked on all of these Ultimate Comics reveals. I'm stoked especially, like I said, on Ultimate X-Men. All three of these books sound amazing, and they're going to be dropping at the beginning of next year. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man hits shelves on January 10th. Black Panther hits shelves on February 7th. And Ultimate X-Men goes on sale March 6th. I am, like I said, incredibly stoked on this. This is going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. But that does it for this, right? New York Comic Con, incredible news. Love talking about it. I hope you all enjoyed me bringing back the news segment for one week only just to talk about all this stuff that happened. And now we're a half hour into this. Um, So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right onto our main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as we put a spooky Geektober spotlight on Craven's Last Hunt. Spider, spider, burning bright, in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Those were the words in 1987 that provided the frame around a story that would become synonymous, not just with Craven the Hunter, but also with Spider-Man as a character, which is kind of wild if you think about it. There are so many Spider-Man stories. Spider-Man is one of the best rogues galleries in comics, with a wide array of different characters to suit any kind of comic reader. You want something wacky? We got plenty of wacky villains. You want something serious? We got plenty of serious villains. You want a psychological death journey into the pits of hell that makes you question your commitment to your humanity versus your animal instincts? Well, we've got Craven's Last Hunt, which is the focus of our latest Geek Explained spotlight. And why are we doing this? Well, it is Geektober after 
after all. We are talking dark stories, we're talking spooky stories, and Craven's Last Hunt fits right into that. And also, a little game, you might have heard of it, called Spider-Man 2 is dropping this Friday, as of this recording, and Craven just happens to feature as one of the main antagonists. The story also features... Spider-Man dealing with the symbiote, which was why it was kind of a toss-up between this and, I believe it's called Spider's Shadow, the Chip Zdarsky run. Um, it was a little Elseworlds, no, Elseworlds, what-if, one-shot story across, like, a, it was basically like a little mini-series dealing with Spider-Man and the symbiote, and genuinely, listener, I pulling back the curtain here, it was settled by a coin toss. I called heads on heads being Craven's last hunt, tails being Chip Zdarsky's Spider's Shadow, and the, the coin landed on heads, so we're talking... Craven's Last Hunt. One day I will get to that Spider's Shadow story because it is bonkers and it is absolutely worth the trip into, especially during a spooky month like this. But Craven's Last Hunt is one of the most iconic Spider-Man stories we've ever had. You know, Spider-Man has been around for a very long time, making his debut in the early 60s, and has been going strong for over six decades. And yet... There are some stories that stand the test of time, and Craven's Last Hunt is one of those stories. Uh, it was put together between the creative minds of J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck, who more or less helmed the whole thing. J.M. DeMatteis, it's really interesting, had been trying to get this story off the ground for a while. For a good long while, in fact. And what's interesting to me as a story is that this wasn't going to always be a Spider-Man story. If you're unaware with the original um, pitch for this, this was going to initially be a Wonder Man story. And y'all know how I feel about my boy Simon. He's the worst. He's the worst. And I am kind of glad that this didn't end up happening. Uh, DeMatteis had pitched this as a Wonder Man story because he was obsessed with the idea of someone being quote-unquote killed and coming back from the dead while someone else who has quote-unquote killed them gives them the uh the strength of will to dig into themselves and pull themselves out of the both uh metaphorical and literal grave and this was going to be a Simon Williams story, a Wonder Man story, as he faced off against his sometimes brother, sometimes half-brother, the Grim Reaper. And yet, at the time, I don't remember the name of the um, of the editor. I should look that up. Let's see here. Uh, Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco turned down this idea where Wonder, Wo Wonder Woman, Wonder Man's brother, the Grim Reaper, would kill, quote-unquote, uh, Wonder Man. He would crawl out of the grave, and then the two of them would battle. DeFalco nixed the idea. He didn't think it had a lot of legs, but he liked the idea of it. He just didn't think that it was a good enough story for it to be devoted to Wonder Man. And so DiMatteis said, okay, 
fine. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this idea to DC. And years later, he pitched it to DC as a Batman story. Where after finally defeating and seemingly killing Batman, Joker would go sane. And this story obviously would have to be out of continuity or else they would have to find a workaround where when Batman comes back, the Joker re you know, goes insane again, which we did end up getting later on as a, as kind of an Elseworlds story. However, at the time, the current uh, status quo, the editorial of DC, was getting ready to put out a little comic called Batman the Killing Joke. And if you aren't aware, uh, the Killing Joke had a lot of that kind of psychological horror DNA baked into it, which, if this was released at the same time, would kind of muddy the waters and... Editorial was basically like, we're going to nix this idea. It's a cool idea, but Killing Joke has already been in development. Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, they got the the people, they've got the people on this. We we really want to just, you know, make this as it is. Brian Bolland is making some of the most incredible Joker art that we've seen at this point. At this point in the mid-80s, keep that in mind. And DiMatteo said, okay, fine. I am going to hold on to my idea as the little engine that could, and I'm going to take this up the mountain back to Marvel and pitch this as a Spider-Man story. Now, originally, this story wasn't going to feature Kraven. The story wasn't called Craven's Last Hunt. I don't know what the original story was called, but the idea behind it was that, much like in the story that we would end up getting, Spider-Man is seemingly killed. The character who does the deed would masquerade as him. Spider-Man would have to fight his way out of the grave, and the two of them would battle. And initially, this was going to be a new character. This wasn't going to be Craven. This wasn't going to be somebody who had been previous previously established because at that point there were no villains that kind of fit this vibe the psychological horror vibe that they were going for with this and eventually they settled on craven now he the way that that Demetrius came up with this was because he was looking at this official handbook of the Marvel Universe. If you aren't aware, there used to be these gigantic like encyclopedias of Marvel characters. I remember very distinctly my dad had taken one of those um, official handbooks, and I don't know how exactly it happened, but he had it in this gigantic binder, this big old white binder four ring and that was how i learned about a lot of the marvel characters was flipping through this binder and reading these pages and data pages and all of these things that would make certain people who hate data pages you know shiver and wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and eventually reading through this entry for craven the hunter dimatea said that's our guy that's who we need to tell this story and Demetrius immediately brought in Mike Zach to be the penciler for this because he knew the vibe he was going for and he knew that Zach could accomplish what he needed. And so 
the story was dubbed Craven's Last Hunt, and with Demetrius and Zek working together for the first time since they had previously worked together on Captain America, they thought, let's give us, you know, let's give readers and fans of our stuff a little, let's throw them a bone. So we're going to bring in a character that we created together in the pages of Captain America, Vermin. Now, at this point, they did not realize how iconic, and I keep using the word iconic, but it is, uh, how just embedded into the zeitgeist of Spider-Man stories this would end up being, and how mighty this story would become in the annals of Spider-Man lore. Because initially, this team was going to be working off of one Spider-Man title. And this was the period during the 80s and 90s where if your character was popular enough, they had like six books. Uh, This was what led to the reign of the Superman, featuring a different Superman in every Superman book because there was four titles going on. This is when uh, Batman was Batman, Batman and Robin, Batman Detective Comics, and Spider-Man was in three different books. Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, the long-running Amazing Spider-Man, and the Web of Spider-Man. And this team was supposed to tell this succinct six-issue story in the pages of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. But after getting the pitch, after looking over what they were planning to do with this, editor Chim Salkrup decided to publish it as a big old crossover between all three Spider-Man titles, which meant that for however long this story took... This was all that was going on in Spider-Man books, which made sense at the time because you didn't want something as heavy and dark and life-threatening as this story was going to be going on in one book and then having Peter just, ah, shucks, I'm dealing with my marriage troubles in another book. So they decided, you know what, we are going to deal with this story as if it could be the last Spider-Man story. So it is going to take over all of the books because this could be an ending and we are going to promote it as such. And so they took the approach of even if it's, you know, confusing for people, even if like, hey, we're stopping all other stories that are going on in the other two titles to tell this story. Eventually, this is going to make a hell of a trade. And boy, didn't it. So it's, it's a story that, as you can, as you can tell, took a lot of planning. Obviously, it takes a village to make a single comic book. And so bringing in this, you know, cavalcade of incredible creatives. We had obviously J.M. Dematias and Mike Zek as your main writer and penciler. We had Bob McCloud, the legendary Bob McCloud, as inker. Uh, Letters were done by Rick Parker and colors were by Janet Jackson. No, not that one. Uh, The editor, of course, Jim Salkrup, with the editor-in-chief at the time, Jim Shooter. And what this six-issue series does, what this story accomplishes, is telling one of the darkest Spider-Man tales that we had ever seen before and would see since. And it is all about our three main characters. We have Kraven, we have Spidey, 
and we have Vermin. Now, Vermin is an interesting case as a character because he was created, as I mentioned before, in the pages of Captain America. He was a gene-spliced experiment done by Baron Zemo that turned him into essentially half-man, half-rat. And he was this cannibalistic character who, by the end of that story, it took both Captain America and Spider-Man together to best him, and only just barely. This guy is a monster, both literally and figuratively. And... Eventually, he escaped, and he began to make his home in the sewers of New York City. And where we find him in this story is still in the sewers. He is living with his little rat tribe. He is coming up during the dead of night and kidnapping, it looks like mostly women, and feasting on them. And so he is this terrifying this terrifying animal that strikes out in the night, and it's a... His his pages are some of the most disturbing when it comes to the story. Um, usually his sequences are him capturing women, dragging them into the sewer, and then feasting on their bones and other body parts. And the way that Zek draws vermin is haunting. Like, he's got these just absolutely terrifying all red eyes his body is covered in flesh-colored fur which is just Uh, sharp teeth claws the whole deal but he's a character who has been consumed by the animalistic side there are moments where he gets these bursts of clarity where he's like i used to be a person before this and now all i do is i hurt and I hunger. And being someone who has become more or less a slave to his animalistic nature is very thematically important to this story because it pitches him as a foil not just for Spider-Man but also for Craven. Craven in this story has reached kind of the brink for him he has you know alexander wept there are no more worlds left to conquer except one there is one everest that he has not been able to climb and that is as he refers to him the spider craven is an interesting case in the story because there is a certain amount of psychosis that is involved with his perspective. Each of our three main characters, as well as other characters like Mary Jane, do get their own caption boxes, get their own thought bubbles, and each of these caption boxes not only have their own perspective, but they have their own font, they have their own color, and every so often when there are intrusive thoughts, those boxes change color to show just how much is going on and to show the conflict that is happening within the minds of these characters. And with Craven, there is a certain amount of duality to Craven himself. He is dealing with this idea of as a man, he has found himself at a crossroads where there is only one challenge left for him and as you know someone who prides himself on his honor and the glorious house that he hails from in Russia he needs for his life to be complete to 
accomplish this goal, to conquer this last mountain. And yet, as a hunter who has been consumed by this idea of the spider, which begins as something more... Um, more physical and as the story goes on becomes more and more abstract needs to conquer this idea that has been haunting him because from a young age craven and this kind of shifts him into almost a a prototype for what what, what we would later see with bane and nightfall he has been haunted by this spider this spectral um form that is representing every bit of anxiety and trepidation and anguish and every trial and tribulation that he has dealt with in his life he attributes to this ethereal spider that has hung over him and his family from a very young age and he later begins to attribute it to spider-man and he even recognizes with growing clarity as the story goes on how much he has pinned onto spider-man this idea of the spider and the idea of the spider being this shadow that has hung over his life that he is now focusing all of his rage onto this one person eventually drives him to do things that he did not foresee for himself and he has made it his goal to not just kill the spider, but to become the spider. He believes that that is what is left for him in this life. Which brings us to Peter Parker. And I don't know if this is a common thing with Peter. I don't know if this has ever happened before, or if this has happened since. You know, I don't really read comics. But Peter, for whatever reason, is having a tough time. I know that's strange, and I don't think it's ever happened in another Spider-Man story where, Sp where Peter has struggled, but Peter is dealing with some stuff. Like, he is dealing with being a newlywed and all of the <laughs> all of the uh, stuff that comes along with that. And as someone who is a prospective newlywed, who in, God, in four months... Just over four months as of this recording uh, is going to be a newlywed. I am terrified at the idea that my greatest enemy is going to come after me after my wedding. But this is a big time of change for Pete and for MJ, his new wife. The two of them had been going through, you know, the motions when it comes to comic book couples and you know, the will-they-won't-they they soap opera of it all, especially in this era of Spider-Man comics. But the two were finally allowed by editorial to tie the knot, and Pete is dealing with new challenges when it comes to that. What does it mean to be a married man? What kind of responsibility does that now entail? And on top of all that, he just lost one of his closest friends. Well, friends being the operative term, uh, which is Ned Leeds. And I hate to break it to anyone who is unfamiliar with 
this era of Spider-Man comics and has really only come through the MCU, Ned and Pete were not friends, let's say. At least not the close friends that they're portrayed in the MCU. Ned was often an obstacle for Peter in his pursuit of Betty Brant and vice versa. And Ned eventually becoming the Hobgoblin, or maybe becoming the Hobgoblin depending on the writer and editorial at the time, put the two of them in an interesting quandary in that they were characters who fundamentally understood each other, but at that same point were diametrically opposed, both in worldview, in romantic interest, yada, yada, yada. And so Ned recently died during the events just prior to this. And if you get the most recent Ultimate Collection of the of Craven's Last Hunt, it includes both the wedding issue as well as the previous story where Ned dies because all of that is weighing on Pete at the beginning of the story. He's dealing with the pressures of being a married man and having to be responsible and having to take on all of these new attributes, responsibilities, stresses, and anxieties, as well as dealing with the death of maybe not a best friend, but someone who he felt intimately close to whether that was you know as an antagonist or as a friend and so pete is dealing with the concept of of morality as well as mortality while he is trying to continue to fight crime and at the beginning of this story in particular he is again faced with the idea and the concept of death and the struggle with morality when he attends the funeral of Joe Face. Noted informant Joe Face, who has recently died and is getting more or less a funeral service at a local hench bar. And Face is an interesting character in that he represents almost like a... a uh, what was his name? Marley from uh, Ghost of Chris- from the uh, from A Christmas Carol, where he is this character who we don't really have any concept or any context for him prior to this story, and yet his specter hangs heavy over our protagonist. And Spidey initially shows up to Face's wake, his memorial service, and it does not go well. He shows up as Spider-Man. Everyone's like, oh, shit, Spider-Man's here. So there's an, an ensuing scuffle. But then Spidey reveals like, hey, I'm just here to drop off money so he can get a proper burial. And there is something magical about Pete and about Spider-Man in this moment um, because there are, there are arguments to be made, and I've certainly heard them, and I've made them at certain points, that Spider-Man as a superhero is one of the most human characters ever created for comic books. And the duality of this character who spent probably just as much time fighting Joe Face and beating him up and, and you know bringing him into the authorities as he does getting to know these people is something that makes Spidey unique and something that has always enchanted me about Spider-Man as a character. And so when you get down to it and you get down to the nitty-gritty of this character, he is someone who fundamentally cares for people that's the crux of his character is that he cares sometimes too much and 
the fact that this weighs so heavily on him, this death of a of a goon who could not, you know, have a worse lot in life to the point that Spider-Man himself has to bring money to give him a proper burial. Again, highlights the humanity in that character. So if you were looking at our three protagonists, or let's just say our three main characters, we have a character who embodies the aspect of humanity in Spider-Man. We have a character who embodies the aspect of your animalistic nature in Vermin. And you have someone who is struggling with both sides in Craven, And he is at a flashpoint, not that one, in his life where he has to decide which side he is going to ultimately succumb to. And so as the story progresses, very quickly, uh, Craven has set in his mind that he is going to become the spider. He is going to become this entity that has haunted him and not only is he going to kill the previous avatar of this entity he is going to take over his life and so when spidey is beset upon one fateful raining stormy night by craven who is just running around with his vest and a lowing cloth and nothing else like you you can you can see at this point that craven is not possibly doing well psychologically and he is able to surprise spidey who has all of these things going on and is able to not only catch him in a very strong net but rocks up in a or rocks up with a rifle and it takes spider-man it delays him more than it should for him to register this. I love the sequence of Spidey getting caught where all of a sudden his anxiety is represented in red caption boxes where his normal uh, thought process is captured in yellow. And we see um, the, the caption boxes go, don't know what this net is made of, but it's something I'd have trouble with at full strength headaches getting worse and the way i'm feeling now it could take me all night drums to break free jungle drums okay so maybe it will take all night i've been in worse shape before i know craven's method what's that he's got there he's just like doc ock and the vulture and all the rest of them looks like a rifle he's gonna pack me off to some secret hideout spend a couple of hours ranting and raving a rifle and while he does i'll find a way to beat his smirking face right into the a rifle and he doesn't register it until it's too late and the end of chapter one is Spider-Man recognizing that something is wrong with Craven. Something is desperately wrong with him. And we have the caption boxes of him mentioning this isn't the Craven I know. And he says, yesterday Ned Leeds, today Joe Face, tomorrow Aunt May, Mary Jane. And the red box is saying he's out of his blam. We hear the rifle go off. And framing this first chapter is someone digging a grave. And we find out that this grave is for Spider-Man. We see him in the coffin. They give him the burial service. Craven throws the dirt on the coffin until it is buried. And very notably, there is a spider crawling along the top of the coffin before it is buried alongside Peter. 
And the end of the first issue, Craven is one, Spider-Man is dead. What happens next? And the grave reads, here lies Spider-Man, slain by the hunter. And what proceeds on here is Craven deciding to become the spider. He has a mock-up of Spidey's black costume, which he is wearing. It's not the symbiote, but it's a cloth costume. And he has decided, I am going to become the spider. I am going to become the source of all my fear and my anxiety over the course of my life. And I'm going to do the one thing that Spider-Man never could do. I am going to capture and I'm going to kill Vermin. He sees the reports, just like everyone else does, of this cannibalistic killer stalking the streets of New York City at night. And he takes it upon himself to not just become Spider-Man, but become the superior Spider-Man. Not that one, though. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Mary Jane is stuck at home. Because she has no idea what has happened. Peter went off to patrol for the night, and he never came home. And... It is days before Mary Jane finally works up the courage to go looking for him. Because in her mind, he could be dead. She could stumble upon his dead body. They never got to say goodbye, and that's it. And so when she is beset upon by these two street thugs and is rescued seemingly by Spider-Man, she feels this tremendous amount of relief. That is until this Spider-Man starts mercilessly beating the shit out of these thugs. He is more violent, more ruthless than P the Peter that she knows. This isn't Peter. And when she registers that, and Spider-Man registers her registering that, Craven books it. Because this is the first moment that, whether he chooses to register it or not that he has lost the plot. And he is becoming more spider than man. And as we head further into the story, two weeks pass of Craven just being the most. Of him being this brutal Spider-Man that, very interestingly, it becomes not just a commentary on Spider-Man, on Craven, but on the comic book industry as a whole. Because I would like to remind you, this story came out in 1987. Do you know what story came out the year prior? The Dark Knight Returns. You know what else came out that year? Watchmen. Stories that not just took a magnifying glass to the medium of comic books, but also shifted the way that they were looked at for the decade, if not for longer, if not up until today. There are comic book mediums and comic book properties and comic books that are still influenced by this era of comic books that were led to be darker, grittier, more, you know morally gray and easily corruptible and what this story presents and i find this fascinating is a commentary on what people could expect if this darkening this cor this corruption of superhero comic books met spider-man 
Because for all intents and purposes, this is the Spider-Man that would fit in right away with Frank Miller's view on these characters. This is, you know, your your Frank Miller treatment of Daredevil. This is your Frank Miller treatment of Batman through the lens of Spider-Man. This is a Spider-Man who is more brutal, more animalistic, less forgiving. This is not the Spider-Man who would show up to a thug's funeral and offer to pay for his funeral services. This is a Spider-Man who would ruin lives in the pursuit of his own brand of justice and this becomes a commentary on that trend in comic books and that okay this is what you want in the same vein of what was going on with captain america during this period of time when we got the u.s agent the rise of john walker this was a mirror being held up to this wave of dark and gritty comic books and saying not everybody needs to be this way and what we see is the city at large reacting to this reacting to the spider-man and saying there's something wrong and mary jane especially saying there's something wrong. You know what else is wrong with this, though, is the strange moment where Robbie Robertson is renamed Joe Robertson, and I don't remember at this point what was going on with that, but for whatever reason, Robbie is named Joe here in this story. Mary Jane goes to visit him, tries to tries to come to grips with her fear and anxiety about what what's happened to Peter and knowing that this is someone who she can trust but at the very last moment pulls away because she doesn't know if she can trust him with Peter's secret we see all of the puzzle pieces being put together and all of the chess pieces on the board as Craven hunts vermin in the sewer, we get this big throwdown where they battle it out, and Craven does prove himself to be physically superior. And there's this great moment where this drunk bum is just sitting in an alleyway, and he's just like drinking the night away. A manhole cover pops open, and we see Spider-Man just lift himself out, dragging the body of Vermin with him. And it's like, Jesus Christ. And it, it's one of those like old, you know, cartoon moments where someone sees something ridiculous happen, look at the flask or the bottle that they're drinking and just toss it away. It's exactly one of those moments. And while all this is going on, we see another framing. We see the grave that Craven had left Peter in. And over the course of this part, of part three, spiders begin to congregate around this grave. First one, then a few more, then a few more, then a few more, and more, and more, until it is my worst fucking fear. Just an absolute swarm of spiders covering this grave. And at the very last moment, in the very last panel of chapter three, a hand emerges from the grave. And the first time we have seen Peter Parker's caption boxes appear, and his first thought is Mary Jane. Uh, in chapter four, chapter four is Pete 
fighting his way out of hell. And just in general, Mike Zeck started this story not even doing the interiors. He started his work on this by doing the covers. And all of the covers are tremendous. The Craven cover where he is shouting, raging against the dying of the light, holding a Spider-Man costume, is incredible. But Chapter 4 might be the most famous out of all of them, and it's Spider-Man literally digging himself out of this grave. And so, Part 4, again, features Pete coming to grips with his death, both literal and metaphorical, in that he is fighting against the concept of death and rediscovering who he is, believing himself to be the spider that Craven conquered. And yet, what ends up pulling him out of the grave is him once again coming to terms with his humanity, finding the thing that sets him apart and the thing that Craven mistook him for. And he is able to use that humanity to dig himself out of this grave. And the scene of him pulling himself out of the grave, the rain, the storm raging around him, gripping this headstone that reads, Here lies Spider-Man slain by the hunter, is powerful. It's him showing the thesis statement on this of our better natures allowing us to rise above and he stumbles his way and there's something fascinating and there's something that I love about him getting to this moment this triumphant moment he's pulled himself out of the grave he stands up and he wobbles and he falls backwards because he is still dealing with the effects of the shot that he took. This rifle was not meant to kill him. He was shot with the heaviest of tranquilizers to simulate the symptoms, the symptoms, to simulate the, I guess the symptoms, the symptoms of death, where his heart rate slows to a crawl, he goes cold, and he simulates death for two weeks. He stumbles into the estate of Craven the Hunter, finds the newspaper clippings of Spider-Man, Berserk, Cannibal Killer, Assault, and recognizes that he needs to get his life back. And he stumbles his way through Craven's mansion, going through all of his um, his possessions, his belongings. And when he breaks free of this place, he is met by a grinning face. Craven recognizing he's coming. And we find out that Craven has been keeping Vermin locked in a cage just for this moment. But Pete doesn't immediately go after Craven. He goes home. Remember, his first thought upon pulling himself out of the grave was Mary Jane. And MJ, who has been near catatonic for almost two weeks while she just hears about Spider-Man going berserk and knowing that it's not her husband throws her phone away finally for it to be caught by a web. Peter arrives, the two of them embrace and share a tender moment as two lovers who have missed each other dearly are finally reunited. Pete 
afterwards um, wakes up to find MJ, you know, doting over him. He is not in any condition to continue his crusade. He can barely speak, but he knows he has to go after Craven. He says, I don't want to go. Believe me. I want to stay right here with you where it's safe, where nothing bad can touch me. But don't you see? He's out there. He's waiting. He's murdered in my name. I've got to go. He gives one last look to Mary Jane. The two of them have a tender moment where their hands clasp each other tight. And it's this beautiful sequence where it's just, there's no word balloons, there's no dialogue, the rain is just coming down. And Pete, who is teetering on the edge of letting his humanity be overtaken by this animalistic need to exact vengeance upon Craven, has a sobering moment where he remembers what he's fighting for. The two of them embrace, the lightning cracks, and he, just like a certain dark night before him, leaps into the rain, revitalized. He makes his way to Craven, who is still dressed in his Spider-Man costume, and it brings us to part five. And one thing that's fascinating about this is that while the events of the story are going on, uh, we see often cutaways to a spider and a rat representing the two sides, representing two of our three, um, two of our three main characters, and the two who have come to be in conflict with. I guess who we could call our main protagonist, considering his names in the title of the story. But it feels weird, like, calling him the protagonist, since he's done some heinous bullshit. But we see that Spidey has arrived and is ready to throw down with Craven, And throw down he do! Because he b begins to beat the ever-loving hell out of Craven, And Craven doesn't fight back. Craven is getting his shit rocked, but he keeps grinning spitting blood and grinning a bloody grin as Spider-Man doesn't know how to process. And Craven reveals, look, I'm not going to fight back. I already won. Like, I beat you. I beat you down. I put you in the ground. And I became you. And not just became you, I became a better you and did what you could have only dreamed of. And he strips down back to his lowing cloth and vest and shows Spider-Man his prize. The captured vermin in an electrified cage, suspended in a cave deep below the manor. And he's like, look, dude, I, like, I got it. I won. I did everything that I needed to do. You know, this guy is no threat to me. And by my honor, you are no threat to me. He's a beast. And I beat him. And we see, you know, 
this is like one of the few times that we get to be feel sympathetic for vermin because he is just this trapped mouse in a cage that craven taunts and vermin is just like he he doesn't want to be hurt he doesn't you know he is again he is a slave to his animalistic tendencies in that there are these bursts of clarity but they are few and far between he even at one point says you know i didn't ask to be this and it's not my fault that i hunger and the only thing that i can feast on is human flesh we didn't skip all that but like it's interesting to me that upon seeing all this craven has this moment of like i have understood you i am you know you are this monster talking to spider-man that i have wanted to conquer and so i did and now there is nothing left for me to do and he feels that having conquered this beast this spider that he had been haunted by for his entire life, he feels like on a fundamental level they understand each other, but Spider-Man recoils from him. He's like, this is wrong. And he's, you know, he says, um, his, his uh, caption boxes, rather, Cravens does, say, my triumph frightens you, doesn't it? You know the game is over and you've lost. Oh, there's still a world out there for you to torture and feed upon, entrails to chew up, minds to spit out. But you know that you no longer have Craven in your power, and that not only scares you, it saddens you. And Craven begins to recognize that something is off. He felt like he understood Spider-Man, and there's something that isn't checking out. So he says... You know, let's let's up the ante here, and he releases Vermin. And remember, Craven took Vermin out dressed as Spider-Man. So Vermin believes that Spider-Man is the one who's been beating the hell out of him for a week straight. And so Vermin attacks him. And Spidey doesn't fight back initially. Because he doesn't want to hurt him. He understands that this guy is just an animal who has been abused, and he wants to help him until vermin gets a clean shot on him strikes at him threatens his life in the same way that craven did and that trauma triggers him and he begins beating on vermin losing himself to his animalistic side as he gets ready to strike a killing blow and he holds Humanity wins out. Unfortunately, Vermin attacks him in response, beats down Spider-Man, and as he is about to strike a killing blow, he is turned away by Craven, who releases him out into the wild. Craven, almost perplexed, picks Spider-Man up and brings him back upstairs. He says, The spider is alive in him. There will undoubt undoubtedly be others to rise up in opposition but it's no longer my concern the spider my spider is gone now there's only a man a good man i think how strange that i haven't been able to see that till now no matter i do see and seeing spider-man i thank you and i bless you 
if one such as Craven can give blessings. And there's one final thing I see, something I don't think I was capable of seeing till now. Every man has his spider, and perhaps I, I have been yours. Getting to the heart of why he has been doing this. Hurt people hurt people. And Craven has allowed his obsession with the hurt that he's felt since he was very small to hurt, to lead him to hurt others. This person who he has seen as nothing more as this entity, this specter over him, he finally sees him as a man. He sees him as a human being. He sees him as someone, as a person rather than a hunt, an objective. And he recognizes that no matter what he has done and what he has in his mind accomplished, it does not change the fact that Spider-Man is more man than spider. And this ghost, this dragon that he's been chasing, he will never catch. Because it is something in him. It is not something that he can physically overcome. And in that moment, that final realization, he says to Spider-Man, Craven the Hunter will never hunt again. Spidey feels the sincerity there, and he goes off to find Vermin, while Craven, having accomplished everything that he needed to do, and knowing that there are some things that he will never be able to do, Gets in his nicest robe, lights a long cigarette, and his final thoughts in this story read, How calm I feel, how peaceful, as if something inside me, some knot, some tangle of fear and anger and so much more, has been finally untied. All these years, fleeing Russia, suffocating in America, finding release, finding honor in the jungle. All these years, and I've never known peace or calm or that elusive thing called happiness. But I feel as if I can know it now, that it's nearby, just outside perhaps, hidden in the patter of the rain, the drumbeat of the thunder. Peace, calm, happiness, an ending. And Craven takes his life. In the final chapter of the story, we see the perspective shift. The story has been about three characters, and now it is about one. Spider-Man, through his trial, his struggle to live, has one last mountain he has to climb. He has never beaten Vermin one-on-one. -on -one. He knows that Vermin will kill again. And though Vermin has been misguided, 
though vermin has let his animalistic instincts overtake the humanity that Spider-Man knows is inside him, he knows that he cannot walk away from this. And he knows that he cannot leave vermin to his own devices. There's an interesting moment at the beginning of part six where we see that uh, Pete may have developed a form of claustrophobia. As he is climbing through the tunnels, he is brought back to the moment of being trapped inside the coffin. And it's Peter overcoming this fear, this anxiety, this trauma that leads him to his final trial, battling with vermin. While interestingly, the associates, the various henches and goons of Craven's employ dress Craven in the Spider-Man costume that he had been wearing and bury him in that. They put him in the coffin, they lower him down into the grave, while at the penthouse that Craven had set up to meet with Spider-Man earlier in the story, the police arrive, thanks to an anonymous tip, and find a confession where we see photographic evidence of Craven taking out Spider-Man, assuming his identity, and committing all of the crimes that he had committed while under the mask of Spidey, thereby absolving Spider-Man of any wrongdoing that Craven had committed in his name and letting the world know that they can trust Spider-Man again. Spider-Man's final duel with Vermin is, in a word, brutal. It is visceral as the two struggle for life, and it becomes the manifestation of that thesis that we were talking about earlier of humanity versus your animalistic side. And as the representations of each struggle for dominance, struggle for their own existence, we see that the cracks are still there in Vermin's facade. He does not want to be hurt as much as he, at his core, does not want to hurt people. And as he goes to strike at Spider-Man again, he recognizes what needs to be done. Vermin has hunted at night. That is where he is most comfortable. That is where he is most dangerous. And so Spider-Man, not unlike a story that would come later, Nightfall, leads the manifestation of all of his fears into the daylight where he is overwhelmed and ultimately defeated by Spider-Man. In the end, Spider-Man accomplished what no one believed that he could. Vermin is taken into custody, and Spider-Man promises to get the help of scientists like Reed Richards to try and reverse Vermin's condition. Newspapers released that day profess that Craven's confession absolves the menace of Spider-Man. But that's not what Spidey is concerned with. 
he immediately heads to Mary Jane, who is going through this photo album of their times in college, their young love, and as she hears the door creak open, Mary Jane goes to embrace her husband. And Peter's only thought is, I'm home. Once again, Craven is buried in the grave that his minions have constructed for him. The headstone reads, Here lies Sergei Cravenoff, Craven the Hunter. He died with honor. Which is an interesting take. An interesting reflection on the character and how he was portrayed. And we get that quote once again. As we see not just a spider on top of this coffin, but a spider and a rat. Representing all three of our main characters. The dirt gets shoveled on as all three are buried together. And I think the message here is that those three sides that were struggling may have been closer and the line that separated them may have been thinner than any of the three of them believed. There's an interesting argument to be made about how similar these characters are to each other. Where none of them asked to be in the situations that they were put into. Craven mentions multiple times how his family was driven out of Russia, which led to him becoming who he is today. Vermin was forcibly kidnapped and experimented upon, which brought him into the situation that he found himself in in the story. And we all know the story of Spider-Man. Peter Parker, bitten by a radioactive spider, someone who was not asking to have greatness thrust upon him, but ultimately becoming possibly the greatest hero we've ever seen. Who's to say? But the fascinating thing about all these characters is not just their similar circumstances, but the fact that each of them, in their own way, deal with mortality deal with the struggle of humanity versus your worst impulses and your worst natures. And over the course of six issues, way back in the far-flung year of 1987, we witnessed one of the most iconic Spider-Man stories of all time, Craven's Last Hunt, about three characters, their hopes, their fears, their trials and tribulations, and most importantly of all, their fearful symmetry. Time is everything. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now I'm reviewing episode number two of Loki season two entitled Breaking Brad. And I think the big question from me 
as well as the big question from a lot of people that I've, you know, talked to about it. Are we missing an episode? (laughs) Because the jump between episode one and episode two, I think, is striking. There's a there's a bit of a disconnect when the episode starts because you have to just assume, okay, some time has passed. Um, General Docs and her people, as well as Hunter X5, have gone off in search of Sylvie. No one's been able to track them down. Mobius and Loki are back, are now kind of in charge of the TVA, and everyone's kind of just going along with it. But we don't know how much time has passed. And I think there is a, there's a certain amount of, you know, we, I, I mentioned it last week, and I, I'm not I'm far from the last from the first person to mention it but the doctor whoification of Loki is astounding in that you never know how much time passes between episodes and it gives it not just a kind of adventure of the week feel but also it allows for other stories to be told in between in various tie-in media comics audio dramas etc but that doesn't really work in a story that's meant to be serialized and with a with an urgent plot thread like this, you can't just have like an ellipses between the two episodes and it's like, and then stuff happened. And it feels weird because last week was such a strong episode and I didn't love this week's episode, or I guess now last week's episode, but I just, man, I, I don't know what it was, but I didn't connect with it as much as I wanted to. And I desperately wanted to because I'm fascinated by the story and these characters. And there's if there's one thing that shines in this episode, it is the characters, the character moments, this, the quiet, you know, contemplative moments between characters, Loki and Mobius in the automat, you know, Sylvie on the hood of her truck. Like, these are... These are things that they're able to do in a serialized TV format because you can stretch things out, you can let things breathe. But this episode feels like something happened and we're just not addressing it. Like we're just, okay, this is what the status quo is now. This is how this is going. And in that, it kind of feels like a season premiere, which is strange because we just had a season premiere last week. And... I don't know if there was, you know, something on the cutting room floor or an entire episode that they were like, oh, we got to get rid of this so that we can have time to get in all the multiversal stuff to set up Secret Wars and Deadpool and all this stuff at the end of the season. But it just didn't it didn't connect with me as much as the first episode did. And that's not to say that the episode was bad, because I I don't think I would say it was bad. I think it was just there there is. A, there's a lack of cohesive execution for me, which is a lot of words with big syllables. And I I think, you know, kind of broken down, I'm, I was struggling to keep up with and get engaged and get invested in the events of the story. For half the episode, I didn't realize that Brad Wolf, this variant of an agent that we had, you know, met before in the previous episode, was Hunter X05 or X5 or whatever. I had no idea because I because he was drastically dressed differently, hair, makeup was done differently, and again, we didn't have that time in an episode 
between this to see him either defect or to see more about his character. It was just, he was all, he was a different character and he felt like a different character. And I just, it wasn't until after the episode was over and my partner and I kept asking, who was, who was he? Did he, is he a new character? Did he pop up? That we looked it up and it was like, oh, right. He was in the previous episode. He's the Joel Kinnaman wannabe. Like, I was baffled by the choice to just introduce a character, then drastically change him the very next episode. It was a strange choice, and even though we did get that great scene where Loki gets to be a little bit of mischievous, it was, it, again, didn't land for me. And again, with Loki, you know, when they were pursuing Brad, there was a great moment where he does his, you know, shadow magic or his trickster magic to kind of corner Brad and then uses the shadows to kind of grab him. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. He does magic stuff. Like it's, I I don't know. Like it's strange to me how Loki's main gimmick, his mischief, his magic isn't a part of the story. And I know that we kind of got to, we were able to get away with that last season because it was Sylvie using most of the magic. And then we got a little bit of Hiddleston using magic. We got the other Lokis doing their thing. Unlimited power! Like, it it was acceptable, let's say, for Loki not to have his magic full, you know, uh, full front and center but this season at least for these two episodes like I, I there isn't an excuse and so i was glad to see it pop up here um as for the rest of the episode you know we get to see sylvie spending a little bit of time in broxton oklahoma which was great before it was wiped out unceremoniously off screen and i i don't know it's I know what the the episode wanted me to feel because there's a moment where they're like, oh, they're bombing these timelines. They're destroying them rather than try and change the TVA into something that could be positive. They're trying to maintain the TVA by eliminating any kind of change that would initiate an upheaval of the preordained status quo. But we we get this great moment where B15 who is tr- who's doing the most in this scene she is trying her best she's like those are people as they're blowing up these timelines but we didn't spend any time in these alternate timelines we didn't spend any time with the people living in these variant timelines if we had it would have been a different story if we had had an episode in between this where it's just sylvie getting to know this timeline and being acquainted with oh okay since she now has and it's shown that she has the little you know special you know uh hand wrist tempad thing that she stole off the body of he who remains she can go to any timeline she wants and get you know getting the i guess the background of it of seeing this new timeline what's changed what hasn't what's you know why is this timeline worth defending it doesn't hit as hard as it should when it's wiped out again off screen where we just see a bunch of squiggly lines getting shortened it's supposed to be sad the composer's doing the most the actors are doing the most but the editing and how they positioned this episode doesn't allow for the scene to have the gravity and the weight that it should 
But I mean, it's, you know, we, we are heading towards a multiversal war and we did get kind of a roadmap for what we're going to be seeing next because we have to find Ravana to find whichever Kang variant we're going to end up finding. We got the preview at the end of Quantumania that it's going to be Victor Timely, which I am still very stoked for, but it's unclear how much this is going to affect the characters rather than this being, you know, just kind of like a fetch quest, a side quest where you go to one character to get the information, you get to another character. I know that that's, maybe simplifying it a little bit too much, but I'm hoping that we get a better ride than that through this. But that's that's it. I, I didn't mean to be so negative, and I didn't intend to be negative, but like the more I think about it and the more I talk about it, the less I like it. So I do think that we've still got four episodes left. The series can still, you know, correct its course next episode, but we'll just have to see. We'll just have to see. But that's going to do it for the weekly review. Tune in next week for episode three of Loki. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of October 18th, 2023. This is the segment of our show where I will chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into those books, we have to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And y'all, it was tough. It was very tough. We had some very good books that came out last week. Um, Superman Lost, I want to give a quick shout out that book is tremendous x-men red oh my god that genesis war is heating up but ultimately i chose my boy superior spider-man returns it was wonderful seeing my friend everyone's friend the best guy around Otto Octavius, the Superior Spider-Man, back and in living color. Uh, most of it was a flashback, which is fine because it sets up the new series that's coming. But I just, I loved that issue. I thought it was fantastic. And I'm excited to see where they go with the series going forward. Um, that's not the only return we're going to be talking about this week. But that brings us to this week's books. This week is a big one. I got one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten books. We hit the double digits. Uh, and we are going to kick things off with a brand new number one, that being Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong number one. This is written by Brian Bucalato with art by Christian Deuce. And I mean, it's all in the title, right? Like, we're, it's blockbuster storytelling. It's, Big old monsters with the Justice League caught in the middle. Let's dig into the synopsis. The cataclysmic crossover event of the year is here as the DC Universe clashes with Legendary's MonsterVerse and Justice League vs. Godzilla vs. Kong. Clark Kent is enjoying a night off with a very important dinner planned with his girlfriend Lois Lane when the entire city shudders under the weight of the monstrous Godzilla who emerges from the bay. What started as a routine clash between the Justice League and the Legion of Doom takes a Jesus, the, the Legion of Doom is involved in this too, uh, takes a dangerous turn when the wall between worlds is breached. 
with Godzilla, Kong, and the MonsterVerse emerging on DC's Earth. What ensues will be a brawl of unprecedented scale and destruction from acclaimed writer Brian Buccolato and best-selling artist Christian Deuce. So yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's an incursion. It's an incursion. We'll see what happens. Uh, next up, we have Titans number four. This is written, of course, by Tom Taylor with art by Nicholas Scott. And, uh, you know, th- this is the problem. This is the problem with, uh, with that night terrors. We, I feel like we should be further along than this, but issue number four, we're continuing on. There's some brother blood slash brother eternity stuff. So let's see what we've got. Can the world's premier super team stop Brother Eternity? There's a storm coming for the Titans. Brother Eternity continues to gain power as he toes the line between supervillain and well-meaning philanthropist. Can the team discover his dark secrets before the world falls under his spell? Plus, Beast Boy's mission to Borneo gains the unwanted attention of one of the most dangerous players in the DCU, Amanda Waller, because we gotta have Waller everywhere. Everywhere. Every book. Every book that doesn't have Amanda Waller, people should be asking, where's Amanda Waller? I this is a choice. I am I'm still interested, but we will see. Uh, next up is Nightwing number 107. This is also written by Tom Taylor with art by Stephen Byrne. Where's where's my Redondo? Where is thou Redondo? A Redondo by any other name. Uh, at least he's still doing covers. Uh, this, I mean. The covers for this series are tremendous, as you already know. But this is kind of wild. Uh, this is pirate. This is pirate Nightwing. I love it. it. Says, "Come for the seas, immaculate beauty. Come for the seas, immaculate beauty. Stay for Nightwing's pirate booty." I just come on. We know. We got this. It's great. Anyway, um, the synopsis goes like this. Jump on board these I the Eis these jump on board the Eisner Award winning or Eisner Award nominated series. Yo ho ho! A pirate's life is not for Nightwing. When Nightwing's investigation into who's left the vault under his name leads him to discover a mysterious group behind the Hold, his past comes back to haunt him in the form of the Hold's leader. So again, it's Pirate Nightwing. We are sailing the high seas, and Nightwing and Batgirl are searching for the One Piece. That is, uh, that's what the story is about. Especially, you know, just just read the story. That's what it's about. It's Nightwing One Piece. That's definitely what the story is. Next up, we have Hawk Girl number four. This is written by Jadzia Axelrod with art by Amanke Noelpan. And I just have to mention something. Uh, New York Comic Con, they had a big like super team uh panel announcing all the superman stuff that's where we got the jason aaron announcement that's where we got uh, a bunch of other superman announcements but it i loved seeing on the panel of soup you know the metropolis gang the super family jazzy axelrod was right there i love because and not just because her story is located in um in metropolis but I love the fact that Hawkgirl is kind of an honorary super family member and in that galaxy is also an honorary super fam member. Uh, I just, I like seeing, I like seeing them included. That book is fantastic and you need to be reading it. So let's dig into the synopsis and give you the reason why you should be reading it this week. 
guest starring Supergirl and Steel. Well, there you go. Hawkgirl and Galaxy were looking forward to taking a break from superheroics for an afternoon. Volpecula isn't about to let that happen, and probably puts the entire city of Metropolis in danger. Steel and Supergirl aren't on hand to join the fight, but can our high-flying heroines handle a gigantic fire-breathing dragon? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, let's fight some dragons. Let's do this. Next up, what we have another brand new number one. This is the Sensational She-Hulk number one. This is continuing off the She-Hulk run that was absolutely phenomenal. Written, of course, by Rainbow Roll with art by Andre Genelette. This book is going to rule. Uh, for those of you who may have read the previous She-Hulk book and be like, oh, but she doesn't fight as much. Through interviews, we have heard that this is the book for you. This is where She-Hulk throws down. So let's dig into the synopsis. The sensational She-Hulk is back. Jen Walters is dusting off her adjective and kicking off a new era. The best hero slash lawyer in the Marvel Universe is going to remind you why she's so sensational going up against her deadliest challenge yet. Plus, Marvel Studios She-Hulk series writer Jessica Gao makes hers Marvel in a short story with the Jade Giant. That's cool! I like that a lot! Hell yeah, I like that. And, I, you know, we love corporate synergy. And with uh, with the Disney Plus shows in the state that they are right now, uh, makes me very thankful for shows like She-Hulk that, though the uh, backstage meddling is, of course, there, ended up being exactly what it needed to be. And those of you who do not think so should watch it again. Next up, we have Superman number seven. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Gleb Melnikov, as well as a backup story by Dan Jurgens and Edwin Galmon. And I mean, it's a big anniversary issue. This is 850 with all of the assorted uh, comic book variant covers. I'm looking through these right now. The Libre Mayho one is great. Obviously, the Chris Somni one is fantastic. They went they went a little low-key this time. It's a lot of just Superman standing, or flying in the case of the Capullo variant. But, I mean, I, I really dig that Bermejo variant, so that might be the one that I'm looking for. But this is, again, issue 7, as well as, quote-unquote, legacy issue 850. So expect some big stuff to happen here. Let's dig into the synopsis. An oversized anniversary issue celebrating the Man of Steel and his legacy. A special oversized issue celebrating Superman and his super legacy. That's what I just said. Since the start of Superman number one and the dawn of DC, a mystery has been brewing in Metropolis. Now, that mystery's secrets are unleashed with startling revelations that set up a massive story in 2024. The chain continues as Superman battles against an overpowered new menace who wants to destroy Metropolis. Superman must decide if he is willing to follow Lex's tragic orders to take the chained down. And Lex Luthor is visited by a blast from his past, one that will impact his future forever. Are we getting the little sister? We'll see. We'll see. But I am very excited. Again, the super books are quietly becoming the best corner of DC when it comes to their comic books. So I am very excited to pick this up. Next up, we've got Scarlet Witch number nine. This is uh, 
I th- again, you know, it's it works. It's the timing is great. It's wonderful. It's it's just it's good times. Uh, this is written, of course, by Steve Orlando with art by Sarah Pacelli, Pichelli, Cinderella, as well as Lorenzo Tametta, a name you might be familiar with because he mentioned it all the way back at the beginning of this podcast with the news segment. Remember how long ago that was? This is going to be a big one. I like this. Um, this book, again, I've been loving it. I absolutely adore this series. It's tugged at my heartstrings. It's a wonderful look at a character who does not get enough play. And I'm excited to pick this up. So let's dig into the synopsis. Being the hero to the hopeless is a full-time job. And Wanda Maximoff could certainly use some help. When she teams with a mysterious new ally to assist the people seeking help through the last door, things seem to be looking up. But is he everything he appears to be? Or has Wanda put her trust in the wrong person? Plus, a backup story celebrating Latinx heroes and creators. Wanda Maximoff teams up with Strange Academy student Ava Quintero in a backup story by Juan Ponce and Iguara. I... I'm, I'm excited. I've been really enjoying the backups for this month. It's been awesome, and I'm excited to read this one as well. Next up, we have a big one for me. We're talking about big returns. Uh, Batman Superman World's Finest number 20. 20 issues of this series. Probably the best series they've got going right now. I, oh, I love this book. It's written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora. This is the one we've been waiting for. We are returning to the Kingdom Come universe. We got the tease of this way back when it was revealed that the true identity of uh, Boy Thunder is redacted. And I am really stoked to see the ramifications of that reflected in this story. So let's dig into the synopsis. Mark Wade returns to the world of Kingdom Come, the return of Boy Thunder. To find and save Superman's former protege, the world's finest duo bridges the dimensional gulf between their world and an Earth with a jaded Superman, a broken Batman, and a war-hungry Wonder Woman. The world of Kingdom Come. So yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, There might have been a reason I mentioned Kingdom Come earlier, because I love this story. I love the versions of these characters. And I am so stoked to return to this world that Mark Wade set up. I just, I love when creators get to do this, get to go back to something that they created decades ago and breathe new life into it. Um, This is going to be very interesting, especially because we don't know at what timeline. This is feeling very much... Uh, Adventures of Superman John Kent with John popping up at a certain point in the Injustice timeline. Uh, we don't know exactly when this is happening, though this this kind of makes me feel like it's going to be either much earlier in the timeline of Kingdom Come or during during the events of Kingdom Come. So there was a little bit of time hopping around in that story, so we'll see what happens there. Next up, we have Daredevil number two. This is written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Aaron Cuter. And again, this surprised the hell out of me how much I loved this issue, the first issue. So I'm very excited to pick this one up. Let's Digging to see what Matt's got cooking in Hell's Kitchen this week. The new era of Daredevil continues. Corruption is tearing Hell's Kitchen apart. Those who have sworn to protect the city have betrayed their oaths, and Matt Murdock is seeking righteous retribution. One billy club to the face at a time. 
Daredevil's losing allies left and right. So what does that mean for the love of his life, Elektra? Yeah, I'm excited. Can't wait to pick this up. I am so glad that, you know, Daredevil continues his streak of just getting amazing creative teams. But, of course, the big book of the week for me, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Jay Garrick, The Flash Number One. This is written by Jeremy Adams with art by Diego Olortegui. Olortegui? Uh, I'll get it one day. I apologize for that. But... I am so excited. My boy is back. My boy has returned to me in the pages of his own story. Jay Garrick is back, and it's being helmed by just an incredible writer. Jeremy Adams wrapped up his Flash journey earlier this year, but we didn't know at the time that we would continue his journey with the Jay Garrick story, and I'm so excited. I can't wait to pick this up. Let's... Dig into the synopsis and see what's going on with the Crimson Comet. Jay and his long-lost daughter race side-by-side in the present day. Spinning out of the events of Stargirl, The Lost Children, and Justice Society of America, Jay Garrick is reunited with his long-lost daughter, Judy. After being pulled from the timeline, Judy returns to a world where she and her dad aren't the only ones that ride the lightning. But is there enough space for her in Jay and Joan's life? And can they keep up with their teenage daughter and make up for lost time? So yeah, it's interesting, and I'm sure we're going to dig into it more in the actual series, but Judy got plucked out of the timeline as she was growing at a normal rate. So her parents were a certain age. She got plucked out of the timeline. They continue to age, and now she's back. So there is going to be a bit of a time jump for her. Um, we the, the, the thing about Jay and Joan has been they, and this has been part of their history for a long time in the comics, so I don't know if it's a surprise to anyone, but the whole deal with Jay and Joan is that they never had kids because they weren't able to. And so that kind of integrated them into the Flash family and that they were everyone's parents. When you join the Flash family, Jay and Joan are now your parents. And now introducing a new character into that is fascinating to me as a choice. And I can't wait to pick this up, genuinely. I'm a huge Jay Garrick fanboy. I have never shied away from it. Y'all know how much of a fanboy I am for that character. I've got the action figure. I've got the hat. I've got the cosplay. I love this character to death. And I'm so, so, so excited to read his continuing adventures, especially when it is helmed by creators that I adore. So that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong number one, Titans number four, Nightwing number 107, Hawkgirl number four, The Sensational She-Hulk number one, Superman number seven, Scarlet Witch number nine, Batman Superman World's Finest number 20, Daredevil number two, and Jay Garrick The Flash number one. One. Lots of big returns happening this week, so make sure you return to your LCS and pick up some amazing comics. 
And that is going to bring us to the wrap up. If this is the first time you're joining us on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally anything you want. I will be forced to read every single word you write. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky's the limit on what you can make me say. And you'll be able to join the likes of our terrific 21, uh, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels of Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A Lock and AZ, Sass, Jedi Jesse 20, Ken 4656, Director Hall, Mullet Overlord, Invisible Man 11, Ed Likes Things, Clip 326, That Logan, and Kenneth from Norway. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you'd like to be a part of the Geeksplained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Friday show. If you'd like to keep up to date on the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, get first notification for announcements or that new episodes have gone live, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, and as we can see, there is a ton of it, uh, feel free to follow us on the socials, Instagram and Twitter, at Pod. That's at P-O-D as I continue to try and get better at Instagram. And for however long Twitter, I'm not calling it X, uh, is going to be around for uh, those would be the places to do it. Uh, finally, this Friday and every single Friday, with the exception of last Friday, my amazing friends and I put on the Geeksplained book book club and this friday is pretty special because we are kicking off the second half of season four of the book club entitled brave and the bold and we are filling the entire back half for the rest of 2023 with green arrow rebirth we just wrapped up the flash rebirth and to celebrate the rebirth era as well as send off the flash and green arrow in style we are diving right into the rebirth era of both of these series we just wrapped up the flash if you haven't listened to it yet it was a ton of fun go back we did some of our best episodes including our longest episode and this week we are kicking things off with a little bit of a prologue to the green arrow rebirth story that being green arrow year one i'm really excited about this uh it's written by andy diggle with art by jock and oh boy do we have a lot to say about this i'm really excited to share this with you our mid-season premiere will be this friday so tune in for that uh star city fridays i'll i'll get there we'll figure it out uh are a real thing so be there or be square not a circle but that is going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, we are rounding out Geektober with a pretty exciting episode. I'm still giddy about it. Uh, we, for the first time, are having a comics creator return to the podcast as Pornsock Pachette Shout returns to discuss Dead Boy Detectives. He just wrapped up a run on that series that was 
absolutely incredible. We had a full conversation about it, and I can't wait to share that with you next week in anticipation of the trade releasing early next month. So make sure you tune into that next week, same geek time, same geek channel. It's a great conversation I can't wait to share with you. But for now, for Geek Explained, I have been Eric Gazana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, stay spooky, and we will... See you next time. Boys and girls of every age, wouldn't you like to see something strange? Come with us and you will see. This is our town of Halloween. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. Everyone hail to the pumpkin song. <laughs>